Section 27 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cathy Barrett. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 31. Henry II. 1547 to 1559. Part 1. Henry II. had all the defects and with the exception of personal bravery, not one amongst the brilliant and amiable qualities of the king his father. Like Francis I, he was rash and reckless in his resolves and enterprises, but without having the promptness, the fertility, and the suppleness of mind which Francis I displayed in getting out of the awkward positions in which he had placed himself, and in stalling off or mitigating the consequences of them. Henry was as cold and ungenial as Francis had been gracious and able to please. And whilst Francis I, even if he were a bad master to himself, was at any rate his own master, Henry II submitted without resistance, and probably without knowing it, to the influence of the favourite who reigned in his house, as well as in his court, and of the advisers who were predominant in his government. Two facts will suffice to set in a clear light at the commencement of the new reign this regrettable analogy in the defects and this profound diversity in the mind, character, and conduct of the two kings. Towards the close of 1542, a grievous aggravation of the tax upon salt called Babel caused a violent insurrection in the town of Rochelle, which was exempted, it was said, by its traditional privileges from that impost. Not only was payment refused, but the commissioners were maltreated and driven away. Francis I considered the matter grave enough to require his presence for its repression. He repaired to Rochelle with a numerous body of Lanxnechts. The terrified population appeared to have determined upon submission, and having assembled in a mass at the town hall, there awaited anxiously the king's arrival. On the 1st of January, 1543, Francis I entered the town in state, surrounded by his escort. The people's advocate fell on his knees, and appealed to the king's clemency in dealing with a revolt of which every one repented. The king, who was seated on a wooden boarding, rose up. Quote, "'Speak we no more of revolt,' said he. "'I desire neither to destroy your persons nor to seize your goods, as was lately done by the Emperor Charles to the Gentees, whereby his hands are stained with blood. I long more for the hearts of my subjects than for their lives and their riches.' I will never at any time of my life think again of your offence, and I pardon you without accepting a single thing. I desire that the keys of your city and your arms be given back to you, and that you be completely reinstated in your liberties and your privileges. The cheers of the people responded to these words of the king. Quote, I think I have won your hearts, said the king on retiring, and I assure you, on the honour of a gentleman, that you have mine. I desire that you ring your bells, for you are pardoned. The Rochelais were let off for a fine of two hundred thousand francs, which the king gave to his keeper of the seals, Francis de Montalon, whom he wished to compensate for his good service. The keeper of the seals, in his turn, made a present of them to the town of Rochelle to found a hospital. But the ordinances as to the salt tax were maintained in principle, and their extension led some years afterwards to a rising of a more serious character, and very differently repressed. In 1548, 
hardly a year after the accession of Henry II, and in the midst of the rejoicings he had gone to be present at in the north of Italy, he received news at Turin to the effect that in Guienne, Angoumois, and Saint-Ange, a violent and pretty general insurrection had broken out against the salt-tax, which Francis I, shortly before his death, had made heavier in these provinces. The local authorities in vain attempted to repress the rising. The insurgent peasants scoured the country in strong bodies, giving free rein not only to their desires, but also to their revengeful feelings. The most atrocious excesses of which a mob is capable were committed. The director-general of the gable was massacred cruelly, and two of his officers at Angoulême were strapped down stark naked on a table, beaten to death, and had their bodies cast into the river with the insulting remark, quote, Go, wicked gabelers, and salt the fish of the Charente. The King of Navarre's lieutenant, being appealed to for aid, summoned, but to no purpose, the Parliament of Bordeaux. He was forced to take refuge in Chateau Trompette, and was massacred by the populace whilst he was trying to get out. The President of the Parliament, a most worthy magistrate, and very much beloved, it is said, by the people, only saved his own life by taking the oath prescribed by the insurgents. Quote, this news, says Vieilleville in his contemporary memoir, grievously afflicted the king, and the constable de Montmorency represented to him that it was not the first time that these people had been capricious, rebellious, and mutinous, for that in the reign of his lord and father, the late king, the Rochelese and surrounding districts had forgotten themselves in like manner. They ought to be exterminated, and in the case of need, be replaced by a new colony, that they might never return." the said sir constable offered to take the matter in hand and with ten companies of the old hands whom he would raise in piedmont and as many lanzknechts a thousand men-at-arms all told he promised to exact a full account and satisfy his majesty montmorency was as good as his word when he arrived with his troops in guienne the people of bordeaux in a fit of terror sent to langon a large boat most magnificently fitted up, in which were chambers and saloons emblazoned with the arms of the said Sir Constable, with three or four deputies to present it to him, and beg him to embark upon it and drop down to their city. He repulsed them indignantly. Quote, away, away, said he, with your boat and your keys. I will have naught to do with them. I have others here with me, which will make me other kind of opening than yours. I will have you all hanged. I will teach you to rebel against your king, and murder his governor and his lieutenant. And he did, in fact, enter Bordeaux, on the ninth of October, 1548, by a breach which he had opened in the walls, and after having traversed the city, between two lines of soldiers, and with his guns bearing on the suspected points, he ordered the inhabitants to bring all their arms to the citadel. Executions followed immediately after this moral as well as material victory. Quote, more than a hundred and forty persons were put to death by various kinds of punishments, says Vieville, and by a most equitable sentence, when the executioner had in his hands the three insurgents who had beaten to death and thrown into the river the two collectors of the Babel at Angoulême, he cast them all three into a fire which was ready at the spot, and said to them aloud, in conformity with the judgment against them, Go, rabid hounds, and grill the fish of the Charente, which ye salted with the bodies of the officers of your king and sovereign lord. As to civil death, or loss of civil rights, adds Vieville, nearly all the inhabitants made honourable amends in open street, on their knees, before the said lords, at the window, crying mercy and asking pardon, 
and more than a hundred, because of their youth, were simply whipped. Astounding fines and interdictions were laid as well upon the body composing the court of Parliament as upon the town council, and on a great number of private individuals. The very bells were not exempt from experiencing the wrath and vengeance of the prince, for not a single one remained throughout the city, or in the open country, to say nothing of the clocks, which were not spared either, which was not broken up and confiscated to the king's service for his guns. End quote. The insurrection at Bordeaux against the gable in 1548 was certainly more serious than that of Rochelle in 1542. But it is also quite certain that Francis I would not have set about repressing it as Henry II did. He would have appeared there himself, and risked his own person instead of leaving the matter to the harshest of his lieutenants, and he would have more skilfully intermingled generosity with force, and kind words with acts of severity and that is one of the secrets of governing. In 1549, scarcely one year after the revolt at Bordeaux, Henry II, then at Amiens, granted to deputies from Poitou, Rochelle, the district of Onisse, Limousin, Périgord, and Saint-Ange, almost complete abolition of the Babel in Guienne, which paid the king, by way of compensation, two hundred thousand crowns of gold for the expenses of war or the redemption of certain alienated domains. We may admit that on the day after the revolt the arbitrary and bloody proceedings of the Constable de Montmorency must have produced upon the insurgents of Bordeaux the effect of a salutary fright. But we may doubt whether so cruel a repression was absolutely indispensable in 1548, when in 1549 the concession demanded in the former year was to be recognized as necessary. According to de Thou and the majority of historians, it was on the occasion of the insurrection in Guienne against the Babel that Stéphane de la Boétie, the young and intimate friend of Montaigne, wrote his celebrated Discours de la Servitude Volontaire, ou Le Contrain, an eloquent declamation against monarchy. But the testimony of Montaigne himself upsets the theory of this coincidence. Written in his own hand upon a manuscript, partly autograph, of the treatise by de la Boétie, is a statement that it was the work, quote, of a lad of sixteen, quote. De la Boétie was born at Sarlat on the 1st of November, 1530, and was therefore sixteen in 1546, two years before the insurrection at Bordeaux. The Contrain, besides, is a work of pure theory and general philosophy, containing no allusion at all to the events of the day, to the sedition in Guienne no more than to any other. This little work owed to Montaigne's affectionate regard for its author a great portion of its celebrity. Published for the first time in 1578 in the Memoire de l'État de France, after having up to that time run its course without any author's name, any title, or any date, it was soon afterwards so completely forgotten that when in the middle of the seventeenth century cardinal de richelieu for the first time heard it mentioned and quote, sent one of his gentlemen over the whole street of saint jacques to inquire for la servitude volontaire all the publishers said we don't know what it is the son of one of them recollected something about it and said to the cardinal's gentleman sir there is a book-fancier who has what you seek, but with no covers to it, and he wants five pistoles for it. 
"'Very well,' said the gentleman, and the Cardinal de Richelieu paid fifty francs for the pleasure of reading the little political pamphlet by a lad of sixteen, which probably made very little impression upon him, but which, thanks to the elegance and vivacity of its style, and the affectionate admiration of the greatest independent thinker of the sixteenth century, has found a place in the history of French literature.' History must do justice even to the men whose brutal violence she stigmatizes and reproves. In the case of Anne de Montmorency, it often took the form of threats intended to save him from the necessity of acts. When he came upon a scene of any great confusion and disorder, quote, "'Go hang me such a one,' he would say. "'Tie yon fellow to that tree. Dispatch this fellow with pikes and arquebuses, this very minute, right before my eyes. Cut me in pieces all those rascals who chose to hold such a clock-case as this against the king. Burn me yonder village. Light me up a blaze everywhere for a quarter of a mile all round.'" The same man paid the greatest attention to the discipline and good condition of his troops, in order to save the populations from their requisitions and excesses. Quote, On the 20th of November, 1549, he obtained and published at Paris, says de Thou, a proclamation from the king, doubling the pay of the men-at-arms, arbusiers and light-horse, and forbidding them at the same time, on pain of death, to take anything without paying for it. A bad habit had introduced itself amongst the troops, whether they were going on service or returning, whether they were in the field or in winter quarters, of keeping themselves at the expense of those amongst whom they lived. Thence proceeded an infinity of irregularities and losses in the towns and in the country, wherein the people had to suffer at the hands of an insolent soldiery the same vexations as if it had been an enemy's country. Not only was a stop put to such excesses, but care was further taken that the people should not be oppressed under pretext of recruitments which had to be carried out. A nephew of the Constable de Montmorency, a young man of twenty-three, who at a later period became Admiral de Coligny, was ordered to see to the execution of these protective measures, and he drew up, between 1550 and 1552, at first for his own regiment of foot, and afterwards as colonel-general of this army, rules of military discipline which remained for a long while in force. There was war in the atmosphere. The king and his advisers, the court and the people, had their minds almost equally full of it, some in sheer dread, and others with an eye to preparation. The reign of Francis I had ended mournfully. The peace of Crespi had hurt the feelings, both of royalty and of the nation. Henry, now king, had as Dauphin felt called upon to disavow it. It had left England in possession of Calais and Boulogne, and confirmed the dominion or ascendancy of Charles V in Germany, Italy, and Spain, on all the French frontiers. How was the struggle to be recommenced? What course must be adopted to sustain it successfully? To fall back upon, there were the seven provincial legions, which had been formed by Francis I for Normandy, Picardy, Burgundy, Dauphiny, and Provence United, Languedoc, Guienne, and Brittany. But they were not like permanent troops, drilled and always ready. They were recruited by voluntary enlistment. They generally remained at their own homes, receiving compensation at review time and high pay in time of war. The Constable de Montmorency had no confidence in these legions. He spoke of them contemptuously, and would much rather have increased the number of the foreign corps, regularly paid and kept up Swiss or Lanxnexts. 
Two systems of policy and warfare, moreover, divided the king's council in two. Montmorency, now old and worn out in body and mind, he was born in 1492, and so was sixty in 1552, was for a purely defensive attitude, no adventures or battles to be sought, but victuals and all sorts of supplies to be destroyed in the provinces which might be invaded by the enemy, so that instead of winning victories there, he might not even be able to live there. In 1536, this system had been found successful by the constable in causing the failure of Charles V's invasion of Provence. But in 1550, a new generation had come into the world, the court and the army. It comprised young men full of ardor and already distinguished for their capacity and valor. Francis de Lorraine, Duke of Guise, born at the castle of Bar, February 17, 1519, was 31. His brother, Charles de Guise, Cardinal of Lorraine, was only six-and-twenty. He was born at Joinville, February 17, 1524. Francis de Scepeau, born at Dortal, Anjou, in 1510, who afterwards became Marshal de Vieville, was at this time nearly forty, but he had contributed in 1541 to the victory of Ceresol, and Francis I had made so much of it that he had said on presenting him to his son Henry, quote, He is no older than you, and see what he has done already. If the wars do not swallow him up, you will some day make him constable or marshal of France. Gaspard de Coligny, born at chatillon sur loin February 16, 1517, was thirty-three, and his brother, Francis d'Andelot, born at Châtillon in 1521, twenty-nine. These men, warriors and politicians at one at the same time, in a high social position and in the flower of their age, could not reconcile themselves to the Constable de Montmorency's system, defensive solely and prudential to the verge of inertness. They thought, that in order to repair the reverses of France, and for the sake of their own fame, there was something else to be done, and they impatiently awaited the opportunity. End of section 27